Hello and welcome to Story Untold. I'm Martin Bauman and my guest today might be the most interesting player in Canadian soccer. Issei Nakajima Farin has traveled the world as a pro soccer player. He's lived and played in 10 countries on four continents. He's got 40 caps for Team Canada. He's a painter outside of his playing career and he's about to live out of a boat. He's one of the latest signings for Pacific FC, set to debut in the inaugural Canadian Premier League season. He also happens to be a pretty good storyteller. Here's his story. Rob Friend, yes. former teammate of yours and uh, co-owner of Pacific FC, he said, I, th- I believe upon your signing, that Issei has another good three or four years left in him. What would you like to say to, uh, to Rob in reply? Um, in reply to that, well, I do feel I would say two, three years, but I'm glad he would say three, four years. So he is pushing for a little bit more out of me, which I do appreciate that from him because, uh, you know, he obviously has a little bit more faith in me and than myself, you know, so it's, <laughs> it's nice to have that. And you see each player's kind of habits and, you know, I mean, he knows me as a player, so he knows me more than pretty much most of the, most of the people here. Obviously, him and Josh and Marcel, these guys know me more than anybody else. So for him to say that, yeah, I really appreciate it, and uh, I want to make that really come true. So it's a, it's a vote of confidence as opposed to a backhanded compliment uh, of sorts to, to say. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I kind of do see myself playing. Uh, I, I really want to make this my last stop. I fell in love with this island. I've been telling everybody that asked me, like, what do you think of Victoria? I'm like, this is amazing. This is the best place in Canada. How did I not know this, you know? So I've already fell in love with this place. I haven't even moved into what my accommodation is going to be. So I just can't wait to get my life started here. And obviously the league started and all the football and get in touch with the fans and community. So, so far, I'm just, just in love with the place, yeah. Great. Yeah, I'm looking forward to getting into a lot of these things with you. Uh, let's start with, with this. Well-traveled is a word that I think is often used to describe you and, and both you and your playing career. You played in a lot of different places, whether that's Japan, England, uh, Denmark, Cyprus, Australia, Canada, United States, Singapore, Malaysia. Have I got them all? Am I missing one or two in there? Is it, does that pretty much cover the ground? Yeah, that covers it, even though somebody did say Belgium for some reason. Uh, but I don't know why, because I never played in Belgium, but I remember after Toronto, somebody said, or before Toronto, somebody was saying that I was playing in Belgium. And I was sitting in Barcelona thinking, no, I'm in Barcelona, I'm not in Belgium. <laughs> but that could be cool if I played in Belgium, but no. Um, so no, but that you pretty much hit all the, all the spots there. What was the first time that you had uh, any kind of culture shock from going from place to place and, and, and seeing as many countries as you have by now? I think the biggest culture shock is with my other half, which is Japanese. So I grew up, so I was born in Canada. I moved to Japan when I was three years old. At 10 years old, I moved to England. And I grew up as a teenager playing there at Crystal Palace. And uh, it was a better structure for a youth system with education fully included with your full training as a professional footballer. So. My parents sold the house to send me that direction. And, um, but grow, I, I mean, I totally forgot all my Japanese. I was well far behind in my, in my English. So, and then I had a really heavy British accent. So coming from a British kind of teenage background, playing in Japan at 16, 17, the biggest culture shock was uh, when this, I had a little bit of beef with this uh, elder, um, a little bit, I think only eight months older than me. Uh, we had a bit of beef in training and then uh, in the showers, and so in the change room, he threw 110 yen at me, saying, hey, he say, uh, go give me a can of Coke, right? And I'm in my towel, I'm, it's raining outside, and the Coke machine, or the vending machine is about 40 meters outside. So I'm like, I'm thinking, what the hell is this, you know, what is this guy thinking? This guy's got to be kidding me. And then, and the attitude too, you know, he's on his phone, he just threw, you know, the coins at me, and just hit me, and just falling all over the floor, and he, he doesn't look at me in the eye, so, yeah. so I, you know, I just... I just lost it, right? So I just got up, like, you know, what the hell are you thinking? Who do you think you are? Blah, blah, blah. In English, uh, with like half Japanese, because I kind of lost all my Japanese because I was busy with English. So, and all the young, the, the guys who were the same age as me jumping in front of me and saying, no, he say you gotta, you gotta go buy that can, man, kind of thing. And I was like, what the hell, man? You know, like what happens on the pitch 
stays on the pitch, we're in the change room, we all kind of just, you have to get over it, right? You got to swallow whatever the issue was. But that was a huge thing for me because in Japan, there's so much senpai kohai, which is a,、uh, if you're one year older, you got you to gotta talk to them in a certain way, guys below you and guys equal to you. And this goes through, and this, I mean, this is a vicious cycle in, in Japanese culture. And this happens in all companies, all, te- all sorts of teams in sport, even in schools. And、um, I wouldn't say bullying, but, but I would say borderline bullying because you are allowed to talk to that, that way. It doesn't make you a bad person. It's just that's the structure of the communication. For me, that was huge. I mean, coming from a Western side, you know,、um, it took me a while to accept it and understand it. I don't, tr- I don't treat the younger ones in that because I really did hate how, how I first experienced that. Until 12, 13 years old, you don't really experience that. But once you enter the teenage years, you really、uh, you have to learn as a Japanese to know that. But I always play this card of like, okay, I don't really understand it, so、uh, I'm a foreigner, I'm a stupid foreigner. kind of. I've always played that card. I totally get it, and I do. Speak in that manner to the older guys, but when I speak to the younger guys, it's, it's my equal. It's,、uh, if, I get, if you get friendly with them, then you talk at an equal level. I feel like that teenage period is just a rough time for everybody, regardless of whether you're、yeah. in, in professional soccer or not. Was it a rookie hazing thing then, or was it purely the seniority? Seniority. Yeah. yeah. Before you had gone to Crystal Palace, before you came back, you spent those you know, three to what, ten, so that's seven years in Japan,、mm-hmm. coming up and, and learning soccer. I remember a story I'd, I'd read of yours was、uh, this team that you wanted to try for, a youth team, a youth club. And、uh, it's getting down to kind of the final cuts. There's maybe two or three people left, and you're looking to see if your name was on the list, and it's not. Uh, what did that do for you then? Yeah, well, it's slightly different.、Um, so, out of 350 kids on trial at the age of, I think it was around eight, nine, and、uh, you get to the last, I think, five kids and you get to train with the, the top junior team, so, which is a big thing for that whole of Tokyo, really, because it was Tokyo Verity. Well, back then it was called Kawasaki Verity, it was the biggest club in J League. All the national team players were playing at that team, so, and it was the best setup. For the facility wise. So everybody had a, everything was a wow factor. So just to be able to training on that, to be able to train with those boys on that pitch was a, it was a huge thing. But that goes on for like two weeks and then they narrow it down to one guy going through. And、uh, I remember getting that letter saying,、uh, sorry, but maybe next year,、uh, good luck with your football. Okay, I'm only eight, eight or nine years old and、um, I just never wanted to play again because I was just, it was the, By, you know, with my nine year of life, you know, it was the hardest thing I've ever I cried for days and days. And I remember my dad said to me,、uh, you know, if you're going to cry that much, how good would you feel if you got in? So then I kind of thought about it and say, I don't know, I guess、uh, I'll, be, I'll die happy if I just get into this team kind of thing. And、um, so they said, well, you're going to have to train every single morning before school, which starts at eight o'clock. We're going to have to get out there at 6 30 and just do your technique and blah, blah, blah. And he dragged me out of bed every single morning. And a year later, I got to that last five again, and I was, the fr- I was the one that got in. And the other guys that did get in and didn't get in that year, et cetera, we were all youth team by the age of 18, I mean, 16 to 18. Who was the guy, or maybe multiple? I mean, everybody, when they get into the sport, I think they have the players that they look up to and idolize, the ones that they follow and want to emulate, whether it's taking on their number or. You know, following their moves, trying to、uh, shoot like them, celebrate goals like them, et cetera, et cetera. Who were those people for you? For me, I think it's Kazu. He's a striker for Japan.、Um, he's still playing, which is incredible. I, I believe the guy is like 50 something. Wow. In J League, he only plays like 15 minutes, but he does a couple step overs, and basically all of Japan just loves it. Every,、uh, of course, he doesn't play week in, week out, but. I remember watching him, and that was the first game I saw. And he scored two goals in that game at the stadium, my first game, and that was the impact that I had seeing him score goals and thinking to myself, like, what, what is this game? Like, I was asking my, my father, like, what is this? Like, what's, what's everyone screaming about? Like, we're all screaming at that one guy who's you know, running around the goal celebrating. I was like, that's, that's, that's what I want to do. And, and that's why I can't retire either, because the guy that inspired me is still playing.、Uh, you know? <laughs> so. Which is so, it's, it's very incredible.、Uh, he's obviously got the record or, or 
I don't think so. Actually, uh, I think a Brazilian guy still has the record. But I'm trying to think of how old Buffon. But yeah, I don't think he was quite in his fifties yet. Yeah. Plus, as a goalkeeper, so it doesn't count. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I won't. I won't tell your your teammates. <laughs> uh, so you you grew up in a household. Uh, your mom's Japanese, dad is Zimbabwean and English. What, what kind of um, what kind of influences were in the household as you were growing up that you were picking up on? Uh, just from a global perspective. Well, we had a good life in Japan when I was uh, from three till uh, ten. My mom was working with Issei Miyake back then, and uh, who happens to be a fashion designer. And my father was um, in acting and teaching English at universities, but mainly acting as well, doing voice for uh, Sesame Street, I believe, also. But anyway, he. Um, I just got into the the best team in Japan. I'm, you know, I'm so happy. I, you know, I, I thought I, I'm a, basically a professional footballer at the age of ten, basically. But they just told me we're moving to England now, and I later found out that, well, now knowing my parents even better now that when life gets comfortable and it's there's no, well, everything's just super comfortable, mm-hmm. successful, whatever. They just love to uh, find a new challenge, so we just moved to England for no apparent reason. Which at that time I was like, well, yeah, okay, football is known, known more in England than Japan because right. Japan still crossed with baseball. So I was like, well, no, this is the best team. I want to stay here. But they, so yeah, it was, I mean, they told me it was for the reason of football, which, so the, I know that they don't like comfortable life. They would like the challenge. And uh, so they moved to Denmark, they moved to Barcelona, they moved, they've been moving. Just trying to, so I mean, that's my background, you know. My parents keep moving around because they want to experience life in all these different locations, and they've done that since they were young. My mom moving to Canada when she was 16 to Calgary, and my father was born in Africa. That was a different reason. He, they got chased out of Africa at that time to Canada also. So um, we've just always, we've never really had a home country, and I've never had a home country. I don't have enough friends to be able to say this is where I belong because you kind of you kind of have friends everywhere and I didn't I never wanted to be just in one spot because you know two months in Copenhagen is just an amazing time to be there but then it's better to be spending your September October in Tokyo when it's you know the autumn in Tokyo is is unreal and then uh, the summertime in Brisbane or uh, or even Malaysia is 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 beautiful so I just I've kind of become that way of like I prefer the two months out of the year in this country and then that two months in that country and and then Barcelona's fantastic during that that time and and uh, yeah it's just the way I've grown up I guess you've taken on some things at least that you've that you've brought brought you up in there is I think too this this idea of comfort can breed stagnation if if you're comfortable for too long where you're not growing anymore you're not learning and changing and developing and it's yeah. good to to challenge yourself at times, so I, I can see that. So you moved to England at the age of 10. You're yeah. told at the time that it's about soccer, uh, whether it is or not. Uh, you know, there's at least a reason that's going to yeah. help to convince you not to complain, perhaps, about moving there. Yeah. And you get uh, you find yourself at Crystal Palace and, and learning again uh, and developing in the game. What's that time period like? Well, as a kid, I think in Japan, it's a different... Uh, it doesn't matter if you win. If you don't play well, it was um, that was more the, the focus was more there about playing well than winning. Mm-hmm. Whereas the Western or the British mentality was was all about winning. You, you hear from the parents, you know, win ugly, it doesn't matter. Yeah. yeah, I mean the parents are shouting and screaming more than the kids. So for that transition, there I was uh, I can really really I really felt the passion from from all aspects of the game, whether you're on the pitch or off the pitch or or the professional teams that was playing on the weekend. So to be in that environment, I realized that this is, this is bigger than life. It was just the main thing, the only thing that mattered and the only thing that people really talked about. And that's all my friends talked about too, you know, um, being a professional footballer or talking about their favorite team. And obviously me and my friends were all from Palace. So seeing Crystal Palace, getting their jerseys, you know, looking up to them, knowing that one day that could be us because we are in the setup. So yeah, it's very different to what I was experiencing in Japan and I didn't want to leave that in England when I moved back at 16 but football is such a I know some guys who went through the system in Crystal Palace yes one did one of my good friends did make it to the top team but the the other nine guys you know 
you have no education, you don't have a team, now the life gets tougher. So my father put me on the spot saying, if you're serious about this, you're going to have to, the only direction is to go back to Japan, try to join that Tokyo Verity again. But this time you do full education, get your, um, your diplomas, and if it doesn't go well, at least you can go to university. His advice, so twice now, once, once when you were younger, you know, eight or nine, and we're thinking about giving up on the sport, and then again, uh, as you're considering, well, do I stick around in England or go back to Japan? Mm-hmm. How much, how much uh, guidance has he brought? I mean, he's not, he's not a soccer player himself. What, where did that oh. advice come from, or, or um, oh. how, how much value did he provide in that kind of advice for you? Well, he wanted to play hockey when he was a kid, uh-huh. but he told me that he didn't have the support from his from his parents going to the training grounds, etc. Because of so much snow, somebody has to drive you, etc. And the gear is expensive too. So he always told me that I was lucky to have his support and my brother also. I mean, the the training at Crystal Palace it took us an hour and a hour and twenty minutes, hour and a half just to get to training, and he'd be the one driving me three, four times a week. So. Yeah, it was uh, obviously without his him and obviously my mom too that this would would have never happened. So uh, you go back to Japan, uh, maybe fast forwarding just a little bit, but tell me about your first professional contract, the first contract you signed. You're going pro. Uh, how it came about, the feelings at the time uh, when it happened. Uh, the feelings <clears throat> was um, I wasn't doing so well in the youth team. Um, I've said this in Japanese media many times too that uh, the coach that I had back then, who is a very famous coach, he always said to me that uh, foreigner go home. He said that to me actually three times, one one time a year, and uh, it always got to me because it was a, such a racist comment, and they never saw me as a true Japanese. So it was, um, but that's also the, the Japanese way of teaching because also as much as I disliked his um, his teachings, I guess it gave me. All the motivation I need to even to to play now, mm. without this his uh, brutal kind of kind of hitting you down, hitting you down kind of thing, because it was all about me proving him wrong. It, it, it's always been because of that. Even though I'm sure he doesn't, he probably doesn't even follow my career, you know. <laughs> but <laughs> but uh, I know ten that the other ten guys in the in the youth setup at that time in that age group, um, I was behind them. Like there was two other three other guys that was in front of me, and I was always on the bench. But I was I would always come on and score goals and and uh, but I knew that I wasn't going to be professional at um, at Tokyo Verdy. But as a youth team, the only team you look up to is your, is that team. You know, you're not looking at abroad. You're not looking at because that wearing that jersey and you want to wear it at that home stadium. That's what you think about. Whether you're growing up uh, in Vancouver or Toronto, seeing your that top team, that's your that's your immediate team that you want to you know. Of course. So. So I was already in this mental place where I, I thought football wasn't going to work out for me. And uh, I was thinking, that okay, I'll go back to England uh, where my parents were staying and uh, hopefully, I don't know, maybe get a uh, scholarship in, in the U.S. or something and hopefully still carry on football in one way or another. So I let this whole pressure off of like, okay, I, I'm not going to make it, but I still love the game. So, so anyway, there was four players that were supposed to go on trial at this team called Niigata Alberex, and the top striker, he, um, he, he was really sick, so he couldn't make it. But in this youth tournament, I was the top scorer for the team, so our famous coach at the time, um, um, he, he said to me, I said, you want to fill a spot? We know you're, you want to go back in a couple of weeks, but you know, it's just, why not? You haven't seen Niigata, so let's just go down there. Um, everything's looked after by the coach, so... We'll go down there, check it out, play the game, and you can come back and you can pack up and go. So I said, yeah, sure, why not, you know? Um, and uh, so I did that, and then that coach in Niigata, Sorimach Kantok, he said to me that, uh, so that was his name, okay. So anyway, he said to me that, um, so yeah, I, I had a great game. Even the fans that came to, the, to that second team game, everybody was uh, only talking about me for some reason. And I, I just didn't see that coming. You know, like I tell all the, all the young kids too, you never know when your chance, chance is there. Just never say no. Just always say yes to whatever, any opportunity that comes up. Whether it's send, being sent on loan to Singapore, a lot of guys said no, but I always said yes, why not? You know, it's better than playing 14 games for a second team in Niigata. So once I did make it pro, you would get 30-odd games playing in top league in a, okay, in a smaller country. But sorry, going back to your question... Um, so that's how, that's how I made it pro, and I got my, my contract just 
immediately right then I told my parents like yeah I guess I'm, I'm not coming back I just made it pro and this team Albert X so yeah it was overwhelming it was it wasn't a, it wasn't a big contract at all I think it was like a minimum what all the young boys get mm-hmm. but uh, suddenly I was on the map right uh, yeah that, that excitement that you've arrived in some sense I think for any any soccer player uh, and you can correct me if I'm wrong but the the goal and the gold standard is to go to Europe I mean that's where the the best competition is that's where the top leagues are and the top players are uh, you make your way to Denmark and find yourself on a team and are able to win the championship with that team to get them promoted to, uh, to the top league tell me about that move to Denmark and uh, and the kind of competition that you started to face there so uh, it was a Danish coach called Kim Polson he was the uh, national team coach for Singapore so so while my Japanese team, my Japanese club was setting up a club in Singapore for us young players to get more um, uh, game time, uh, it could have been all the other other teams, but it was my team that said yes, we'll set up a team. And um, so, ten young players went, who was in the squad with the top team, but we weren't getting games. So of course, we were sent, and uh, and obviously other young young players did join us. But um, after that first year, I was top scorer for the team. And um, Singapore, because it's such a small country, and I believe it's a FIFA rule that if you play two years in a small country, that you can gain their passport. Mm-hmm. And Singapore asked me to play for Singapore, and it was a Danish coach. So he said, "Yeah, he said, um, uh, I hope you can join us, and then maybe we can, I, maybe I can take you to Denmark." So when he said that, all I heard was Denmark. I didn't uh, even yeah. hear the Singapore thing, because at that, at that time I already had three nationalities. To kind of choose from so right. so I was like okay um, plus it was against Japan this game Singapore so for me it was like uh, kind of a, a, a window you know to to showcase myself against Japan who all the players for the national team was playing in J1 and I'm playing out here in, J- in, in Singapore hoping to go back to Japan yeah so this was my chance so I thought okay I'll see how it goes Scored two goals, go man of the match, and uh, all the media asked the co- the Japanese coach, like, you know, do you think Ise has a chance? And of course, he said, no, there's, Jap- there's good Japanese players everywhere, so good luck to him. That um, well, that kind of bothered me a little bit, but I wanted my at least my name to be known in Japan. That sure. uh, okay, I, Singapore has never been in Japan, and a Japanese guy joined Singapore to play this friendly and beat Japan. At least, come on, like bring this guy back. At least, right? Is what I, I was hoping for, but uh, that didn't happen, and uh, I didn't. I turned down Singapore as well. I said I'm sorry. I, I have um, well. Shortly after, that's when Stephen Hart called. So it was all like perfect timing because all my family live in Canada, so it was a no-brainer for me. And um, but that was kind of my last. Uh, that was that game was my goodbye to Japan. I was like, okay, Nick, I hope I play for Canada one day to beat you guys one day and. I hope, you know, it'll be the. I don't think there's ever been two guys. I mean, the same guy playing for two different countries, right. playing against you. So, we lost that game against Japan, but at least I got to play against them. And um, but that's how I met Kim Paulson, who did take me to Denmark shortly after uh, two years in Singapore. Yeah. So Stephen Hart, uh, coach of the Canadian men's national team at the time, and uh, and you get the call up. You're 22 years old. What's it like to? Uh, I mean, I guess you'd already worn. You know, another national team's jersey by that time, but to, to put on Canada's colors yeah. and uh, to represent the country that first time. Yeah, I mean, like I said, it was, it was a no-brainer, no-brainer to play for Canada. I always had the Canadian passport. And uh, it's, I, I always went back on my holidays because, like I said, my, my mom's side and my father's side all live in Calgary. So went there a lot. Also Vancouver, so went there a lot. And, um, yeah, just loved, uh, loved everything about Canada, but nobody could work or play football I guess so we always just stayed you know in, in Japan and and London so but yeah playing for Stephen Hart you know again the first call up uh, at that time my, my parents sold everything that they had in England bought a caravan on eBay and then traveled to my game in Hungary uh, stole my bed sheet well they stole everything so they stayed in my bedroom so they, they took my bed, bed sheets spray painted it and uh, made the Canadian flag and uh I think they were the only Canadian fans in Hungary. <laughs> but I didn't even see it because, you know, it was a full stadium. Yeah. And I do regret not seeing this because I, I know they spent a lot of time making that flag. 
they, the police try to stop him too. So like, you can't do graffiti, you know, in front of the stadium. Like, what are you guys doing with this giant caravan? Who are you guys? Kind of thing, yeah. you know. So, but yeah, I mean, I, I couldn't even look up because it was probably the biggest stadium, kind of at the time that I played in, and a uh, full stadium, everybody's screaming in Hungarian. So, yeah, my parents were there, but I didn't see it. I didn't see the flag. Um, but ever since then, seeing the national anthem and seeing the flag in slow motion as you all stare at that, you know, do that ceremonial thing. It's just a, it's just a great, it's just a great experience. Um, and it's nice that my, all my Canadian family got to see that because now it's their first game that they saw me play. I know it's the case in amateur soccer. These uh, intense soccer parents, probably any sport has the same thing. What were your parents like on the sidelines as you were coming up uh, and playing? Yeah, I think my mom was the loudest. It's, uh, I always kind of put my head down when I heard her voice because <laughs> she wouldn't say bad words, but I know my dad always laughs about this, but she would always say, referee, boo. But like in a really weird, like just unoffensive way, you know, but she's like, referee, boo. She's <laughs> like, boo? What the hell is boo? You know, um, and people, I remember people would look, look at her like, what do you mean, boo? You know, everyone's going, you fucking white guy, you know, all the, saying all the bad words in Danish or what, whatever language. But mom just saying boo. So it would, did turn a lot of heads. I think it turned the other players too. It's like, what is she talking about? Because it's so <laughs> loud, we can hear it. Because it's in the, v, you know, she should be sitting in the VIP section. Yeah, so yeah. people don't really scream out things like that in the VIP section. But my parents never liked sitting in the VIP. They'd rather go sit behind the goal and get crazy with the fans. Yeah. So every game that they came, they came to the goal, sit with the ultras and kind of pretend like they're not, they're not my, my parents and just kind of go crazy. Sometimes the unconventional cheers are the ones that, that uh, have the right frequency for people on the pitch to actually hear them. And they, yeah. they make their way across and get noticed. So you're in Denmark. Uh, this is the first time that you and your brother become teammates at one point and not not with the first team but later on yeah. what, what is it like to to play with him well uh i think every footballer goes through the same situation of uh which road you take um i i was i had a great contract in fc Norseland, you know a good nice four-year deal and great city copenhagen and uh after two years i was supposed to go to um there was talks with the graph shop in Holland and I went to go meet the coaches and met the club, everything. But the deal didn't go through. I felt really kind of sour towards the whole thing because I had a certain price tag and then that tripled by the time I came back. And um, so that deal didn't go through. But then that's when this other club uh, called Horsens said that uh, we'll sign you and your brother. And I was like, I mean, I could have stayed, you know, I could have just said, no, this is still great life. We're playing, we're always finishing top five in the league at the time too. So, and just had taste of UEFA Cup. But then they said, my brother. And if you say, you know, you always have a soft spot for your brother, right? Yeah. So, and my brother just came. Um, he was just about on the transfer list as well. So I was like, you know, Paris, you want to you wanna play together? It was always been our dream. So... It kind of, I mean, they gave us a really nice deal, a package deal, but the fact that to even have an opportunity to play together, you know, I was growing up, he was defending, I was running at him with the ball when we were kids, and the amount of neighbors that we fought against, you know, like 2v2s, etc. right? It was always me and the brother, so, and they gave us that opportunity, and we, we just couldn't turn it down, and uh, yeah, that, that, that's what happened, yeah. Who was, during this time, and maybe it happens then, maybe it happens after, during your playing career thus far, uh, whether it's any UEFA game or whatever, where you're playing against another team and, and you're looking at your opponent like, I can't believe I'm on the same field as yeah. this guy right now. You know, this is somebody I've watched for years and years and, and they're right in front of me. Oh, well, for sure against Brazil. I think, you know, everybody was there apart from Ronaldinho and Kaká and uh, Diego scoring in the first two minutes. We thought we were going to absolutely die. I mean, I've said this in uh, other, um, like with Robinho jersey thing too. So I won't go there because uh, it's like a 10 minute story. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, um, but yeah, definitely when Robinho was you know, playing at Galactico, seeing him do the step overs, which I've seen so many times on YouTube, seeing him actually do that in front of me was just incredible. Um, James in Colombia, Shevchenko uh, in Ukraine, just to be able to just rub shoulders with these guys that watching every week on TV yeah and of course you're playing at some level but 
I never quite made it to that top top level, you know, like what Atiba was doing or what Julian de Guzman did, etc. Or even Rob Friend or Josh, for right. example. Yeah. So Arthur and Marcel as well, Marcel also. Yeah. So anyway, um, but these, so I was always kind of that mid tier um, Europe, I guess, you know, because Denmark would be considered mid uh, second tier Europe. So. Didn't quite make it to the top, but uh, just to be able to rub shoulders with these guys, you know, it was just uh, just an honor. And yeah, you kind of have to focus on your what you're doing, but then um, yeah, you, you kind of take a breath when the ball goes out. You're like, holy crap! I'm just I'll just tug on his shirt a little bit and see if he notices, kind of thing. You know, like I remember Hamas was standing in front of me, so I just kind of tug his shirt and he kind of like, give me a look and then. Uh, I'll give him a look back and <laughs> notice yeah. it. Yeah, yeah you notice. Oh, okay, cool. Play out. Got it. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's just very simple, small things. Just a, a nice realization. I'm, I'm not sure if my chronology is right here, but after after Denmark, you go to Australia and then Cyprus. Am I correct there? What was that time period like in either of those? If there's any particular memories that come to the forefront from either of those places? Yeah, uh, well, six years in Denmark was a very cold time. Obviously, it's not as cold as Canada, but uh, I was kind of getting sick of having blue toes all the time. But, I mean, there was a lot of different situations, but uh, when Australia kind of came about on, on the table, it was um, when, when I Googled Brisbane, it was just uh, an absolute beautiful place. So, And I always wanted to kind of experience... Um, this other part of me, which was just travel, travel the world. Not much of a, I mean, I love to go on holidays, but for me, always traveling, it was, my holiday was always going back to see family and friends. So I never had a holiday where I can just go somewhere that I've never been and spend a week. And I actually don't like that either because you have, your holiday becomes so stressful because you got to go see that place and you got to go visit there and do this and do that. Whereas I wanted to just, do what I have to do for the week and if I get that day off I'm going to go hang out with the locals and do what they do and really truly indulge in their culture and, and their nature or whatever they have to offer so and when I saw when I first saw Australia and so I just started thinking okay I wanted to go to Australia I almost went to play in Africa that didn't go through but uh, I almost went to Africa uh, play over there but like it was just like recently I could have gone there I didn't go but yeah, I mean, Asia, uh, Australia, Cyprus, it was just, it, it was just whatever that came on the table, if it was tropical and a uh, cool place to visit or play or was a holiday destination, I was like, I'll be cool to play there. So, yeah. Uh, defining memory from either of those places, Australia and then Cyprus? Um, well, winning the league in Australia, was, that was pretty big. That was uh, very enjoyable. They, we also went through a 36 unbeaten run, which broke all sporting records in Australia and scored two goals that game to beat that record. So it became a big deal, you know, like even Arsenal players in England, all these different top athletes who did beat 36 on beaten run. And I believe Arsenal did that back then. So Perez, everybody was giving us a shout, saying good luck in this game. And obviously a game that we pulled off. So that for me, that game was probably the most memorable game. But then being... Uh, being scratched by a kangaroo when we were camping was uh, really weird because they said, because, well, so basically kangaroo, I, this is off topic, obviously, football, but if you ask me what's... Yeah, exactly, yeah. I, can, I haven't really talked about this because I see people talking about the monkey and stuff and I forgot about the whole kangaroo thing because, uh, you know, along Gold Coast, you can camp anywhere. And that's when I truly fell in love with this four by four kind of style. I always had like small cars or for sports cars until I realized that 4x4, well basically 4x4 just changed my life, having that beach highway that you can just go at whatever speed well okay, no, I shouldn't say that, I'm sure there was a speed limit, but you go at whatever speed and uh, you're going over these sand, I guess what is it called, sand, sand dunes, dunes or, yeah, yeah and uh, just being, it's just incredible to go down the, drive down the beach like that and you just camp wherever you want and uh, there's whales just, you know, blowing what do you call that? Just breathing, I guess. Yeah, sure, yeah. <laughs> breathing. You get to see whales breathing, yeah. Um, and uh, so, yeah, we, t- we uh, put a tent up and, um, and we were camping out and I, I, f- I felt a really, like a, a really weird nail. And uh, at that time, my ex-girlfriend also felt it too, that uh, something was like poking us. And we basically crapped ourselves, but because this is first time camping for us too, so 
we don't know what it was, but we still believe that it was a kangaroo nail that uh, kind of sh- scratched us. <laughs> but prior to that, on this road, I thought there was a, some, some person standing in the middle of the road. So I was flashing him saying, get off the road kind of thing, because this was going up to the beach area. And this person just kind of crouched down and started hopping over. Right. So I was like, oh my God, that's a kangaroo. We haven't seen a wild, wild kangaroo. We see these little ones. And a few days before that, we did go to a kangaroo place to kind of pet the kangaroos and, you know, meet them. And they yeah. were very friendly. And then, obviously, this wild one, I didn't realize how dangerous they were. So I stopped and I got out of the car. I'm, like, literally two meters away trying to take a photo. But, and then checking my camera because, like, okay, my camera doesn't have a decent flash. But this, this kangaroo was bigger than me. Yeah. And, um, and then I was explaining to the teammates when I go back, I was like, oh, see this kangaroo, you can barely see him, but this guy was bigger than me. And it's like, how'd you take that photo? I was like, I was literally, you know, two, three meters taking this photo. And like, you're an idiot. These, these things can <laughs> slice you open. Right. Yeah. So then, and then that night we got poked. So I don't know if it was that kangaroo, but yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. Long story, sorry about that. Good story. <laughs> After Australia and Cyprus, uh, you get the invitation to Toronto FC, come back to Canada to be able to play in Canada for the first time in the, in the professional league there. Five games, two goals, and then they trade you on your birthday, you find out. Tell me about that time period and, um, and how you felt about it. Yeah, um, two goals, five games. Uh, I scored the... So technically, I know you don't count penalties because it was a penalty shootout oh, okay. against the Whitecaps and scored the winning goal for Toronto to go through to the final and then so and then next next day is my birthday so we come into the training and everyone's like happy birthday uh yeah great great penalty you hit the post and went in you know what a way to finish if it's another centimeter that would have been out we won't be even in the final so it was just all great vibes 30th birthday so um but then, uh, yeah, the uh, sports director calls me into his office and I was kind of joking around, like, everybody's, you know, kind of giving me hugs and happy birthday, blah, blah, blah. And you're calling me in like a, like a headmaster, like, you know, am I in trouble? What did I do wrong, you know? Because I'm thinking back, like, no, I didn't do anything wrong. Everything's been fantastic so far. And then uh, they tell me the news saying, yeah, there's no easy way to put this, but uh, you got to pack up your bags and go to Montreal. And that also means you can't play in the final. So I was like, this doesn't make sense, like... No, it doesn't make any sense. What do you, right. what do you mean? You know, right. uh, don't we have a contract? Kind of thing, you know? Didn't I just sign four years? Kind of thing. So, yeah, yeah. So everybody knows what happened, right? So, um, yeah, that kind of sucked. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah. Is, that, is it a different, the rules are different in, in the MLS compared to another league before, like prior? Like the, the way trades might happen or transfers, it's just, it's just different. Yeah, yeah. So, so you get to Montreal. True or false, you, you took the Metro to games in Montreal at least yeah. a few times? Yeah. yeah, we did that a couple of times, uh, me, and, um, me and my teammate. Um, yeah, we did that. I don't know why, why we did that. We, we had a car, but uh, again, it was just, uh, let's just blend in and see what happens. Let's just, you know, because he played, I think at the time, eight years in La Liga, so he was a big player also, but he was like, yeah, I say, let's just uh, go with the Metro, feel like a, you know, feel like a local um, no, nobody recognized us, but but we saw other Montreal jerseys. I'm I'm surprised nobody came up to us like, "What are you guys doing?" Because it was just straight after the game. We were on. I th- I think we did that a few times, at least three, four times. But um, but it's it's not like I mean, we st- at the end of the day, we're still human beings, you know. It's not like so. And if you're in London, you're gonna, you're gonna take the train. It's a better way to travel. But Montreal, we we were just uh, seeing if. We just wanted to be, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, locals? I don't know. Locals, yeah, see, just uh, part of the city. You know? Yeah, yeah. Oh I, oh, I think that speaks to you as a player from, from the reputation that you have coming to teams of wanting to get involved in, in the city and see what the city is like and be pretty friendly with people, from, yeah. from my impression. Um, why, why? Why is that the way uh, you, you choose to be in, in coming to a place? Like, why, why is that an important thing to you if it is to have some sort of a relationship with the fans of that city? I think it all started when I was... Uh, so when you first become a footballer in Japan, they send you to this place called J Village where all the new football, uh, professional footballers, um, whether you're coming from university or high school, everybody goes for three days. And obviously every team sends about their, I don't know, four or five guys who just... their new signings. And they teach you how to uh, talk to the media. They teach you how to do your... Um, 
your tax actually because you can get a lot of tax back so young players need to know this keep all your receipts blah 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 so they teach you everything they're and also your image like how you want the kids to look up to you how you want sponsors to look at you how you want people you know at the stadium you gotta whatever you're wearing you have to understand that you're on the spotlight and then there's the interview so i understand you're supposed to speak in a, a certain manner but everybody's answer is just all so boring. It's all the same. Yeah, it was a great team effort, and everybody says the same thing. I know it's very important, you know, to keep the image, but I know you guys are thinking something else because I know I saw the game or I was in the game. I know you felt something else, you know? So I like it when players are speak their mind. Okay, you have to control yourself and you have to filter it at times, of course. And that's what you should learn as a young kid, as a young player, that you have, to, you have to learn the filter. You have to learn what to say and what not to say, but still squeeze in a little bit of um, your point of view. Or, which the, As I'm saying this, I would still say to the young kids, don't do that, you know, because they'll get you in trouble. And I've been in many, many troubles because I would say something stupid and what I shouldn't have said and go in trouble in Denmark many times. So, and I think fans kind of like that, that I was brutally honest about myself or about the team or even I guess you know uh, MLS as well like I just said it because it, it is it is what it is I'm not I'm not lying here right. I might be uneducated in certain things and I found out afterwards um, but it is what it is I, I spoke it and I don't think I got in trouble but but in Denmark yeah so and I, I just like the fact that yeah you just speak your mind and I've, I've always respond to every single person that reached out to me because if you're going to take the time to ask me a question or tell me what you like or what you don't like well usually I don't spend too much time answering the people that are just sending me crap because you know I'll get a hundred beautiful comments and I would say thank you to every single one of them and that one guy that would just ruin my day and yes it would you know all athletes would say the same thing that one comment would just ruin your day you have to learn to filter that out yourself of course but I think every one out of, I don't know, maybe five bad comments, I'll respond. So, you know, what did I do to you, man? Kind of thing, you know? Right. I think the number one rule of the internet is like, don't, don't feed the trolls. Yes. Uh, and everyone says, don't do it. Don't answer back. And I just can't help it. I was like, so there are, uh, I would end up having a long conversation with some guy that hates me. Yeah. yeah. Are you the type, some people will do this. Uh, I don't know if, uh, some athletes, I think, will be the type that'll go look through somebody else's profile. Let's say somebody is calling you out. You'll, you'll look through their profile and find something about them and then, Put it back to them. Are you are you engaged in that kind of war of words, or are you just no, content? No, no. no, I just ask him like, "What's your problem, dude?" Kind yeah. of thing. Yeah, I, I don't. Uh, no, I've never really gone that far. Yeah, no. that's probably a wise wise course of action. Uh, I'm going to fast forward through uh, fast forward through Malaysia and then through Spain and uh, come to Pacific FC. Why was now the time to come here out to the island and to join this team in this league? Um, I think Rob reached out to me last year because I just finished my contract with Tenengano. And um, I thought it was a great concept of having our own league. And that's what we've always wanted as Canadian players, especially playing as as foreigners. You see the other locals come back to their home country and play their last years and help with uh, young, young aspiring footballers to just enjoying your last years, right? So... But us Canadians and majority of us do play abroad. Didn't just never had that place to come back to. So it was, just depends on who your spouse is. Because majority of them, you know, you get a foreign spouse and you kind of go to the you go towards that country, right? So, um, but so yeah, this is so nice for for older players like myself to come back to and feel like it's it's home. It's something. It matters what I do. It matters what I say. It matters to the young players of. If any five percent uh, tip that I can give them, if I can help them, just that sliver of uh, uh, to be a bit better player, you know. So um, it's nice to be appreciated in, in, a, in that tiny, tiny way. If I can be that, so um, even though I look, I'm, I'm, I, I mean, when I, I'm nothing compared to some of the other Canadian players. Um, of course, like Atiba and Julian, all these guys that I, I look up to myself. So uh, and Rob and Josh, I'll put that in there also. Marcel, you're in there too, bro. Anyway, um, so yeah. Yes, it's nice to uh, be part of something bigger than yourself. Was that the selling point or what was the, the selling point if there was any convincing that they had to do? 
Yeah, it was not convincing, but especially when Rob told me he's getting a club at first, I was like, what do you mean you have a club? Because I think as a footballer, you want to be a professional footballer is one thing. And then as you come into the end, if you, I guess, made enough money or uh, have enough good contacts or whatever it is, it would be nice to have your own club, of course. You know, everything that you've experienced in your whole career, there's always things that, you, that could be done better. And now you can do that yourself if you have your own club. So at first I was like, Rob, you don't make any sense, man. I, I, there's no way. There's just no way. It's unbelievable, right? But then he was like, no, really, it's going to happen. So I was like, well, if you do, do pull it off, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm in for sure. A lot of talk about the Canadian Premier League has to do with the growth of, and growth and development of Canadian soccer. And so much of this is within the context of Canada jointly hosting the World Cup in 2026, along with the USA and Mexico, and wanting to uh, put our best foot forward for that time to feel the competitive team and, and want to, um, to represent by that time. What do you think it's going to take for Canada, the country? Because you look at, look at Canada size-wise, you know, 38 million, and then you compare it to, let's say, a very small country like Iceland, you know, 300,000, and Iceland very competitive yet. What is it going to take for Canada to compete consistently at the world stage? Good question. Well, I don't think it's just the players. It's not. It's never just the players. It's the whole organization. It's, the, it's all the fans. It's the whole country coming together and creating that buzz, um, as long as you create all that buzz. But, yeah, I mean, I'm just so happy that Canada is finally doing this. I mean, I don't think we can put too much pressure on how Canada is going to do because all these other countries have done this for hundreds of years, right? We have how many years to prepare for this, right? So it is a big, big challenge, and there's a lot of pressure on these players who are in that category. And I'm just excited for the kids that were, I mean, the young players that I'm playing with now, that these guys have a, have a shot. We, we kind of had a shot, but it was a long shot because we, we didn't really have that support. We didn't have what these guys have now. But, yeah, if the country can really pull itself together and realize that this is the best sport in the world and it's the, the, the biggest sport that's and the, at the biggest game as well. So I, I truly hope everybody comes together and every single city and that kind of, and it's nice to know that Canada is actually a, a soccer, it's a footballing, it's a footballing country. I mean, I've been driving here in Victoria only for the last three weeks, and all I see is football on the pitches, which is amazing for me to see. This is just amazing because I honestly thought people were playing hockey and playing basketball and baseball, all the other sports, but no, all I see is kids playing football. So we have the grassroots, we just didn't have the system in place. All right, I've got. Three more, we'll see if we can get through these in, in quick succession. Mm-hmm. One name you haven't mentioned as far as the Canadian men's national team goes, I know it's a, of a different generation, but Alfonso Davies, a young guy who's made a lot of, uh, turned a lot of heads recently uh, with what he's done. What do you make of, uh, of somebody like him and his game and what it signals for potentially the growth of, of the national team? For the growth of the national team? Well, I think he can only just, well, he just has to focus on himself. And he, I'm sure he realizes too that he's got the whole country on his back, right? I mean, to have that pressure at a young age, it's, uh, of course, I envy that. He's got the talent, he's got the speed. He's, uh, he's always got the club that backs him up also. He's got what every kid wants, wants in, in a football career. He has all that in his grasp at the moment. So if he can truly focus and, uh, and learn from the guys you know, around him and, and he, yeah, just experience the football at, at his very, very best. As long as he focuses on doing that, I think everybody will follow in his footsteps as long as he follows the guys around him. You're doing something a little bit different in coming to Victoria in, uh, in wanting to experience the island in a bit of a different way. Yeah. Uh, tell me about your living situation and what it's going to be while, uh, while here at Pacific FC. Well, for those that don't know me, um, I like to get to know the community and uh, that all kind of goes with whatever I can find on Google Images when I put that city in. And usually Terengganu was like, uh, well, various places was, they have their certain thing that they love to talk about and basically brag about, right? Um, and I always wanted to experience that from a, from a local level and that's what usually I focused on. Um, on my days off, basically. But I see that there's just so many boats here and so much water and so much amazing scenery that I kind of wanted to experience that. I have zero knowledge of uh, boats, but uh, 
yeah, I got myself a boat. Because <laughs> <laughs> I see that majority of the families have, a, at least somebody has a boat, right? Yeah. It's, people have been on boats around here. So I wanted to experience the Gulf Islands and uh, kind of check that out on my day off. Um, I don't know if I can get there and come back in one piece, but uh, basically got myself a boat. Just for the logistics, is this a, a sailboat? Do you have to teach yourself how to sail too, or is this something that you just, you know, it's just a matter of the, the steering wheel and, and that's all you need to know? No, it's a 1967 trawler. Uh, it's got 130 horsepower. I think, it, I, think I can jog faster than this yeah. boat. So I obviously it won't go too crazy with this boat. But yeah, it's a wooden boat. It's, uh, it's a beautiful boat. All right, last question for you, and thank you for your time today. Uh, at some point down the line, you know, you, Rob has said you've got another three or four good years in you, and, and uh, who knows what, what that's going to be. But as every, everybody at some point hangs up the cleats, what do you envision uh, your life after sport to be? Uh, I mean, you seem to be a man of many interests. What do you think that time is going to look like for you? I don't know. I can't even see that time coming yet. Uh, I still feel too good to, to quit. and I, I love the game too much to to say goodbye to and I have too many friends who did quit who, who all tell me you say if you can play one more year just play one more year and that's been going on for a couple of years now so I want to keep that going for a few more years Ethan thank you very much alright thanks a lot man that's it for the show thanks for listening and I hope you liked it if you enjoyed the show please do me a favor hit subscribe leave a rating and a review if you want to follow up on more Pacific FC news, another great podcast, The Young Gaffers, do a great job of covering not just the team, but the rest of the Canadian Premier League. If you want to get in touch, a few ways you can. You can send me an email at storyuntoldpodcast at gmail.com. You can follow along on Facebook at facebook.com slash storyuntoldpodcast. You can also find me on Twitter at Martin underscore Bauman. Theme music for the show is by Dr. Turtle off the album You Um, I'll Ah. Once again, I'm Martin Bauman, and this was a story untold. See you next time. Mm-hmm.